0: Welcome to Spellbound. I'm Andrew Rader. Julian is a bit under the weather this week, so he's going to be sitting this one out. But I have the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jessie Christensen, who is an astrophysicist with the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute at Caltech, where she searches for, characterizes, and catalogues planets orbiting other stars. So we're going to be talking about exoplanets, really cool, planets circling other stars outside our solar system. In 2018, she was awarded the NASA Exceptional Engineering Achievement Medal for her role in the successful NASA Kepler mission. Kepler is one of the best space telescopes, it's really cool. Which discovered thousands of exoplanets and revealed that rocky planets are common throughout the galaxy. She now works on the NASA Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS, to find the nearest planetary systems to Earth. Systems that will be ripe for further study with the next generation of ground and space based telescopes. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thanks, Andrew. On the show tonight. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about exoplanets. We're going to be talking about planets around other stars. Could there be life there? What do we mean by Earth like? Are there literally other Earths out there, and what do we know about them, and how do we know it? We're we gonna find, you know, how do we measure their atmospheres, and just what is the state of knowledge? I'm sure.
1: Wait, how people long? Have lots how long questions. are we gonna talk for? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe like forty minutes or something like that. But uh, so, I guess um, maybe just give a quick introduction of what your research is on, what your background is, how you got into this, and I guess what is an exoplanet? Just sort of top level.
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, So I got into this because I grew up in Australia, out in the country, and I always liked looking at the sky. And the planets in particular, our planets in our solar system, were so tangible and almost touchable, like right there. And the pictures of them that we saw with the amazing spacecraft that went past them or to them were just so amazing. Uh, So when I became a grad student in, in astronomy in the early 2000s, we were just starting to learn about these things called exoplanets, uh, so these are planets orbiting other stars. And the idea had been around for thousands of years because we've known that the points of light in the sky were stars like our sun for a long time. And if our sun had eight or nine or seven, however many you believe, planets around it, then maybe other stars did too. Uh, so this was just becoming a big thing when I became a grad student and I was super excited about the idea of looking for these worlds, these tens of tangible, touchable worlds around other stars. Uh the, the sad story is I spent a very long time searching for these exoplanets without finding them. So I was a grad student for four years, worked on two different projects, never found any planets. Then I was a postdoc. For two years, searched for them again, never found them. Uh, And then I joined the NASA Kepler mission as a staff scientist in 2010 and finally was part of an incredibly successful, in fact, the most successful project so far to find planets around other stars and have been involved in finding thousands of planets. So I finally, I earned my due. I I put in the hard yards. And now we know that there are thousands and thousands of planets around other stars. And we actually predict that in the galaxy, there's billions. So that's pretty cool.
0: So how do we find planets around other stars? You said the planets in our solar system, I mean, you can go out, you can see Mars, the little red dot in the sky, you can see Saturn and Jupiter, which are really bright. How do we see planets around other stars?
1: Right, and that's the thing, right? So Jupiter and Saturn are bright to us, but the Jupiters and Saturns around other stars are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly faint so faint, they're almost impossible to see. Even with our current technology, which is getting better and better all the time, people building better instruments, launching better spacecraft, it's almost impossible to see them. So actually, mostly we discover them indirectly, by which I mean we look at the stars that they're orbiting and we see the stars change, because the stars themselves are putting out lots of light, they're very bright, uh, and the the planets themselves modify the star's behaviour, and that's what we're looking for. And the two most common ways that we've found of uh, to find planets, one is called the transit method, and that's what Kepler and TESS use, Uh, and that relies on the fact that if you have a bunch of planets orbiting a star and they're lined up just right, uh, so if you're looking at that star, then the planet just happens to go between you and the star, and it will block some of the light. It actually just comes across and blocks out some of the light. So you measure the brightness of the star over and over again and you wait and you wait and you wait and eventually if you're lucky and it's lined up just right you'll see a dip so in our solar system if you're an alien civilization that lives in our ecliptic so our ecliptic is the circle on the sky that our solar system is in all the planets all the signs of the zodiac they're all in the ecliptic if you're an alien civilization that lives on a star in the ecliptic you might see the earth transit our sun Uh, and every 365 days you would see a little dip and that would be the Earth going by and blocking a very, very, very small amount of light. And that's one of the reasons why we had to go to space, because these dips caused by the planets blocking some of the light are very small. The other problem with transiting planets is, as I said, they have to be lined up just right. So most of the time, planets don't transit. Most of the stars in the sky have planetary systems around them that we'll never see in transit. So transit is kind of a bit of a roll of the dice. It's a statistical method. You have to look at hundreds of thousands of stars to find the small number of systems that are lined up just right. The other method, so that's the transit method, the other method we use most commonly is called the radial velocity method. And and it's got velocity in it because uh, we have ways of measuring the velocity of stars. We have ways. It sounds like the mob or something. We have ways of making them talk. Um, So we have ways of measuring the velocities of stars. So all of the stars in the galaxy are moving, our entire galaxy is rotating around the galactic center. It's very cool. But if you look at the motions of the individual stars themselves, sometimes you see something really interesting. So again, let's pretend you're an alien civilization looking at our solar system. You would see our sun moving back and forth with a period of about 12 years. And that's because of Jupiter. Jupiter's actually pulling on our Sun. As Jupiter's going around our Sun, it has enough mass that it's actually tugging on our Sun. So the Sun is tugging on Jupiter, but Jupiter's tugging back. So the Sun is actually inscribing like a little circle in the middle of our solar system because of the orbit of Jupiter. And it's moving, so we can measure the velocity. So what we do is we measure the velocities of other stars and we look for wiggles, back and forth wiggles, that are caused by them being orbited by planets. So again, these are really indirect methods. We're not usually seeing the planets themselves. We're seeing the impact of the planet on the star. We're measuring the starlight in various ways and we see something happen to the starlight that's because of a planet. So it's kind of an induction. We infer that there are planets there because we see the stars do a thing. In a very, very small number of cases, which are spectacular, and if you haven't, please go on the internet and look for these systems. In a very small number of cases, we have been able to take pictures and even make movies of planets orbiting other stars, which is incredible. Uh, It's a very small number because the stars have to be very close to us, so it only works for the most nearby stars. Uh, The planets themselves have to be very young, so this only happens for young young solar systems, and that's because as planets form and collapse and, create, and become their final planetary forms, they're still radiating heat. So we can actually see them glowing because they're still hot, because they're still forming. Uh, so we see this for very young planets that are very nearby, and you can just see them if you're very clever and you block out the light from the central star with a very clever instrument called a coronagraph then you can see these planets. So there's only a handful, but there are a number of planets where we can actually see them, which is incredible to me.
0: So you detect them from the wobble of the star um, in the case of, in, in that method. So is is it true that uh, the common gravitational center of Jupiter and the sun is actually outside the sun? So Jupiter's not a planet for that reason? <laughs>
1: I th- so my husband and I were actually trying to do this back of the envelope math the other day. It's about a solar radius if we've got our like order of magnitude astrono- astronomy, right? Mm. And all astronomy is order of magnitude. So I think it is actually just outside the surface of the sun. Now all your listeners are going to go fact check me and be like, oh, it's just inside. It's either just inside or just outside. The okay. sun.
0: Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty close. Yeah, yeah. This is like um, Pluto and Charon. Pluto has a moon. Exactly. It has five moons. But Pluto and Charon are really like a twin system that kind of orbit each other, basically. Exactly. Although Although is larger, exactly.
1: so, yeah. So, interestingly, there is not a definition of an exoplanet yet. So all of this guff about Pluto and whether or not it's a planet, it's because mm. someone wrote down, inscribed from on high, these are the mm. characteristics that something called a planet will have. Mm.
0: Yeah, As of yet, yeah, there yeah. isn't it's an arbitrary. official
1: exoplanet definition. So we get mm, to do whatever we want. Ha ha ha.
0: But isn't a dwarf planet a type of planet
1: so yes, so if we, so we, I'm the royal we. If the NASA Exoplanet Archive, which is the database that NASA keeps of all of the exoplanets we found and all their properties and the stars that they orbit and where they are, that's what I, that's my day job. That's my hat that I wear is maintaining this archive for mm. NASA. Uh, we would accept that. We wouldn't. We don't differentiate between planets and dwarf planets mm. as exoplanets. They're all exoplanets. We're very welcoming into the exoplanet community. You just have to weigh less than thirty Jupiter masses, thirty times the mass mm. of Jupiter. Uh, and you have to be—you do have to be orbiting a star, so we can talk about mm-hmm. rogue Otherwise planets it's a brown if you want. Dwarf. Yes. So, so between thirteen and thirty Jupiter masses is starting to edge into brown dwarf range. Mm. But we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. So, just in case some of these lower tail brown dwarfs are actually big planets that fail to even start burning deuterium, because the mass limit for burning deuterium does depend on the metallicity of the star. Now we're getting into some some, some actual technical stuff here. So we try to be as inclusive as po- possible. So the main criteria, though, is that it needs to be published in a refereed paper. And that actually is a is a hurdle.
0: I mean, planets outside the solar system, obviously, that's super cool, uh, you know, on its own. I think one of the first ones in the 90s, like r- about 1990 or 1991, was around a pulsar. And obviously, that means it's completely bathed in radiation and definitely not habitable. Um, but people, you know, the thing that we're really interested in is eventually finding the place where we're going to send our colony ship and set down the humans and right. <laughs> I hope there's no sure. alien eggs to come out and, you know, infect us. But, uh, yeah, so most, be- be- because of these methods, most of the planets that we find are really big. But how do we find Earth-like planets? How many do we know are out there? What's the closest one?
1: Right. So how do
0: we know they're Earth-like?
1: Right. So the reason we launched Kepler, the Kepler mission, was to find out how common planets like the Earth are. So the Kepler mission was actually designed to find planets like the Earth. So it's a one-meter telescope that was observing this one patch of sky for four years to see at least three transits of an Earth-like thing, Earth-like rock orbiting a star-like sun, a sun-like star, rather. Um, And so all of the specs were designed to find Earth-like planets. But after four years, we didn't have any Earth-like planets. And it turns out uh, that in the planning stages, we'd made a mistake, uh, which is that we had to make an assumption about how noisy stars are. So stars, I'm talking about measuring these tiny dips, but stars themselves are doing stuff all the time. They're rotating, they have star spots, they have flares, they have... Granulation on the surface, which is to say the surface of the sun, if you look at it up close, it's boiling, right? There's all these cells going up and down of material plasma. Uh, and that just creates noise uh, if you're trying to measure the brightness of something exquisitely over and over again. It's you're not actually just looking at like a 60-watt light bulb. The sun is doing stuff, and the other stars are doing stuff too, but we'd never measured them very precisely before. The star we knew the best was the sun. So we based all of our measurements and all of our extrapolation and all of our design of this instrument on the sun, thinking that the sun was probably average, right? You know, trying not to be anthropomorphic about it, the sun's probably average, the sun's probably not special. Well, it turns out that the sun is quiet. Our sun is actually quieter than most stars, which is really fascinating, right? Like, what does that mean? Is that important for life, that our sun is quiet? Yeah, right, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, but it was important for the Kepler mission because it meant we hadn't mm. built a big enough telescope uh, to get enough photons to get over this noise limit. Um, mm. So we weren't actually sensitive to Earths like we thought. And in the end, we didn't really find anything spectacularly Earth-like. The most Earth-like thing that Kepler found is called Kepler-452b. I'm sorry about the names. I don't get to choose that part. They're all, they've all got garbage names. Um, Kepler-452b. It's the right temperature for liquid water, which is one of our criteria. It's orbiting a star like the Sun, which is another one of our criteria. Uh, we can talk about different stars some more if you like. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's about one and a half to 1.6 times the radius of the Earth, so it's a bit big. We're a little worried. Somewhere about that point, 1.5 times the size of the Earth, is where things start to really pack on the gas as they're forming. So mm-hmm. our Earth has a quite thin atmosphere, but then, you know, we've got mm-hmm. the gas giants and the ice giants in the outer solar system with these huge extended atmospheres. So somewhere between one and two Earth radii is where you start to run away and get a whole bunch of gas. Um, mm-hmm. So we're a little bit worried about Kepler 452b. It's a bit big. It might have a very extended atmosphere. The reason that's a problem is at the bottom of a, a very extended, dense atmosphere, uh, the pressure and temperature would be, you know, thousands of times surface pressure on Earth, and thousands of degrees. So, you know, you're starting to, even if you're the right distance from the star, you're starting to just get way out of the bounds of what we would call habitable, in terms of mm. pressure and temperature. So, a big gaseous atmosphere is bad, it's a no-no. <laughs> so, we're a like bit Venus, worried... Like right?
0: But, but even more so.
1: Yeah, so we're worried like, about Kepler-452b. Mm. We're also a little bit worried because it's not the strongest signal in the data that we'd like to see. Sometimes signals of this strength go away when you look at them again. Um, so that's a little bit of a worry too. But that's the closest we have, Kepler-452b, to something that's truly Earth-like, which is to say, we don't have anything that's truly Earth-like yet.
0: From any missions? Not, Not really, Kepler. So,
1: so Kepler mm. was really pushing the bounds of what we could do. Um, we really don't have anything. So for instance, the radial velocity method, the pull of the Earth on the Sun changes the sun's velocity by eight centimetres a second, which is about the speed of a walking tortoise, is the analogy mm-hmm, we always mm-hmm. use. And,
0: and things in orbit go like seven kilometres per second. Yeah, so, so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, a
1: tough, it's a tough measurement to make, eight centimetres a second. None of our instruments are there yet. There are plans. Everybody is excited about the next generation of instruments and how stable we might be able to make them such that they could measure these eight centimetres per second. The problem is, again, the stars themselves these convection cells bubbling on the surface are actually coming towards us faster than eight centimeters a second. So this whole source Mm. of noise, which you're integrating over the stellar disk to try and get one measurement of the star's velocity, you're integrating over so many different velocity features on the surface of the star that just finding eight centimeters a second, oh, it's tough. So no, we haven't actually found anything truly Earth-like yet.
0: I thought there was a a potential Earth-like planet in... Proxima Centauri or uh, alpha, orbiting Proxima Centauri sure. or so, orbiting Alpha Centauri or Okay there's in, two there's
1: two different stories you're conflating here and both are very interesting. Let's talk about Alpha Centauri first. Alpha Centauri is a star like the sun, which is very exciting. And a number of years ago on Christmas Eve, this paper came out. I always think of it like a Christmas present to astronomers about a habitable rocky planet around Alpha Centauri. And everybody was just super excited because Alpha Centauri is the closest star system to us. And it was like, wow, our nearest neighbor might have a planet like the Earth. The problem is uh, it turns out that the signal was fake. Uh, It was uh, an artifact of when they had done their observing uh, if you, it, Basically, that aliases a signal into the data that's not there. Um, so they call it the ghost in the time series because it's not really there. Uh, and so that's a shame. So that went away. It lasted a little while. We were all really jazzed, and then it went away. But then Proxima Centauri. So Proxima Centauri is one of the three stars in the Alpha Centauri system, which is the closest star system to us. It's only four light years away. So it's right there. You know, back there, it's still 2015 in the glory days. <laughs> So they're, they're looking at us at our best. Um, so, but the problem with Proxima, so remember before how I was saying sun-like stars? Proxima is a red dwarf. Mm. So, uh, so our sun is just a, it's a G star. That's just what astronomers use to classify our sun. It's a, it's a medium-sized yellow star that's about 5,500 degrees. Mm. But actually most of the stars in the Milky Way are red dwarfs, something like 75% of the stars. So red dwarfs are cooler uh, they're smaller, they're less than half the size of our sun, um, and they're more like three or four thousand degrees instead of five and a half thousand degrees. So, M dwarfs are much smaller and cooler. What that means is you can actually get much closer to an M dwarf as a planet and still be habitable, right? Uh, because it's cooler, so you can get closer without getting burnt. Uh, but the problem is, M dwarfs uh, have a very different radiation profile to the sun. So, where M dwarfs put out a lot of their energy, M dwarfs are very active. So when I was talking about our sun with its like piddly few sunspots every now and then, M-dwarfs are like sunspots and flares all the time, just going off all over the place. Um, And each of those events puts out a massive amount of high energy radiation. So X-ray radiation, UV radiation. Um, UV radiation is what we use to sterilize equipment on Earth. It's not not good. (laughs) So we're worried about planets orbiting M-dwarfs. We're worried that they might be sterilized by these high energy events that are happening very regularly. So they seem like they have rocky planets around them, which is exciting, and they're the mm. most common kind of star in the galaxy, which is awesome. We think the galaxy is full of rocky planets, but they might all literally just be bare rocks because their atmospheres have been stripped away by these high-energy, high solar wind effects. It's, it's, we don't know. It's an active area of research right now whether m dwarf planets are habitable.
0: What about the Trappist system? It's supposed to have three... Earth-like I mean, planets in the, in the yes. Goldilocks zone, at least, right? Yes. I mean, it's a red dwarf, I think, so they're it much is also closer. I... I mean, they're, they're within the orbit of Mercury, I think, all of them. But, all, yes, but they're all, all really seven small. planets.
1: Yeah. Yes, so that's also an M-dwarf. So uh, there are seven planets that we know of. I'm holding up seven fingers like your listeners will be able mm-hmm. to see. I'm sorry, listeners. There are seven planets right now that are rocky and that are the right temperature for liquid water, and all seven of them orbit M-dwarfs.
0: Right. Okay. So, is it possible? I mean, this is more of more of like an astrobiology or maybe biology question. But is it possible that you might have life that would be able to tolerate higher radiation levels? Or I guess you're saying the atmosphere is even not present ne- necessarily, right? Or like Cross Sagan even imagined like animals flying through gas giants, right? Right. And it's it's not really impossible. It's just we we don't see it. We we don't know about it. So. Maybe it's
1: possible. Right. So there's, there's a few <laughs> things there I'll touch on. Uh, yeah. One is that if the atmosphere is gone, then there's no, there's no pressure on the surface to keep things like liquid water. Mm-hmm. Liquid water comes back to your point about Carl Sagan, which is that there are many different kinds of energy pathways and chemistry we can imagine that would create something that could be, if you saw it, you might think it's something called life. Uh, mm. We are, that's stuff that people are doing in the lab right now. Like, what are the other chemical pathways? What are the energy gradients you can exploit uh, if you wanted to be life that wasn't just you know DNA based, right? But when we're asking for money from NASA to go and look for potentially habitable things, it's very difficult to say we don't know what we're going to look for. Please fund us to search for everything in the sky. And we've mm-hmm. tried that, and it's usually not a success. Yeah. You need to have some other very cool scientific reason, like we will also explain the birth of stars and how galaxies die and all that other kind of stuff. Also, we yeah. look for life because we're looking. But if you want to get funding to do something like this, you really need to explain why. And at the moment, the only real clue we have is that all life on Earth uses liquid water. So that's kind of what we have, and we're going with it. You're absolutely right that there may be many different kinds of life. I hope there are. That would be amazing. Imagine if there was only one kind of life. Like, come on. Chemistry and physics is more interesting than that. But, but that being said, I don't know how we look for them.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. I promise. Basically, right now, we're looking for liquid water. And I think that is it the GWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, That's will right. actually be able to detect... We'll have a spectrometer or something like that that will be able to detect liquid water in the atmosphere of the light coming directly from the planet or something like that. Like, how, how are we going to confirm that there is liquid water? I mean, I know that we could tell if it's if the right distance from the sun. Right. But,
1: so, yeah. so this also takes advantage of transits. So when the planet goes in front of the star... If the planet has an atmosphere, a thin ring of gas around it, then the starlight will pass through the atmosphere, just the way our sunlight passes through to us. Now, all atoms and molecules have a fingerprint uh, in the sense that they absorb light at different wavelengths. So water absorbs light at certain wavelengths all the time everywhere in the universe. Hydrogen absorbs light at a particular wavelength all the time everywhere in the universe. So they all have these spectral fingerprints, So if we look at the sunlight, at the light from the star before the planet goes on, and then when the planet goes in front, we look again, any difference in the spectrum is caused by atoms and molecules in the planet's atmosphere uh, blocking some of the light. So we know that water absorbs light at 1.4 microns. So we look there, we say, hey, if we look while this planet is on and off the star, do we see a difference at 1.4 microns? And if we do, we're pretty sure it's caused by water. Now, whether or not it's caused by liquid water is a much more difficult question. You need to know the radius of the planet very well, the mass of the planet very well. You need to have a good model for its atmosphere, uh, whether you could have liquid clouds, for instance, in the atmosphere. Uh, So that's all very model-dependent right now. Or you can say there's water in some form, it absorbed at 1.4 microns. Then you say, on this kind of planet, at this temperature, the atmosphere would look like this. Therefore, we think it's liquid water. So it's a bit... You have to make a whole series of assumptions, is what I'm saying, to get from something absorbed at 1.4 to liquid water. But that's basically what James Webb will do. Uh, It's going to look at a whole bunch of different wavelengths for a series of molecules that we're interested in. Um, Unfortunately, James Webb, even James Webb, which is going to be six and a half meters, the biggest thing that NASA's ever launched into space, even James Webb won't be able to do that for truly Earth-like planets because the signal is just too small. Earths are tiny relative to the sun. So small.
0: Okay, so um, you mentioned Alpha Centauri, and that is a binary system. What would a planet be like in a binary system? That's like Luke's home planet, Tatooine. Exactly. Right, which has two suns, yes. right? And I, I guess it sort of depends on how close the stars are to each other. But uh, can you imagine that there might be binary systems where the stars aren't just like really far apart, but sort of actually relatively close to each other that might somehow be able to support life, and it would just have some weird... Actually, I've heard that, you know, the seasons in Game of Thrones, how they're all, like, different right. lengths, yes. random lengths almost? It's uh-huh. kind of maybe a binary system, and that's why. because I saw that, yes, a very eccentric
1: be. binary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that, that, yeah, that would be fun. Uh, an, an astronomer should go... An astronomer who likes Game of Thrones should go and work out if that's actually plausible. Um, so, yes, we have found lots of different kinds of binary systems that have planets in them. Um, So there's basically, they fall into two main categories. So it comes down to stable orbits, stable orbits. So in one kind of system, there's two stars that are very close together, a very close binary star, say orbiting each other in less than a week, just a few days. And then you have a planet that's far enough away, oops, sorry. Then you have a planet that's far enough away that the two stars are basically like a point source so mm. you're far enough away that the planet's orbiting this center of mass in the middle, which is the two stars, but they're so close that their individual orbits aren't perturbing the planet. So that's one way.
0: But you the, still would get a temperature cycle, right? But it would be on the order of weeks or something like that. Or days yeah, or yeah, yeah. weeks, right? So, so it so get like really hot. Every two weeks it gets really hot and then really cool and then really hot, kinda.
1: Yeah, it's, it's possible because often these binaries have quite different types of stars in them. So like a G star mm. and an M star, for instance, one of our yellow mm. stars and then like a cool M dwarf. Um, and, they're, and they're often eclipsing each other as well. So you'd get like daytime from one and nighttime mm. from the other. Um, because what we found is that these stars and planets are often in the same plane. So if you imagine a big pancake of material kind of collapsed down to form these stars and the planets... The stars and the planets are all in the same plane. So how we see these with Kepler is actually you see the planet transiting both stars, one after the other. Mm. Uh, And then then when the planet comes back, the stars have switched places. So you see the transit again, Uh, but it's orbiting the other star first. Um, So you see these really complicated, interesting light curves from these planets orbiting these binary stars. So that's one kind of binary system that has planets around it. The other kind, uh, which is, I think is the first one you alluded to, is when the binary star is so far separated and the planet is orbiting very close to one of them that the other star mm. is effectively not there. Like they're mm. gravitationally bound, but it's far enough away that it's, again, not perturbing the orbit of the planet. Um, so in terms of stability, you basically just have to be able to treat, you have to have a planet orbiting a point source. So that means either the stars are really close or the stars are really far apart. So there's a whole bunch of intermediate space, which is just, you know, a no-no. Like yeah, stability, right. no. It's just going to, the planet's would just going to get spat out.
0: Yeah, they wouldn't even have planets then. I mean, or or maybe they would, but like further away or, yeah, hard, right. hard to say. Like we, we may even have planets that are quite far away, right? Like further than Pluto and, yeah. So may, maybe there might be planets.
1: Sure. I mean, I'm at Caltech, so I'm contractually obliged to talk about Planet Nine. Uh, which yeah, is the exactly. putative body that's out past Pluto, which is uh, shepherding a bunch of Kuiper Belt objects. So Kuiper Belt objects are the, uh, a bunch of stuff like Pluto uh, way out past Neptune. Um, uh, and yes, it looks like some of them seem to be lined up in a not random way, which can be explained by another body called Planet Nine, uh, which was uh, hypothesized by two Caltech astronomers a couple of years
0: ago. Uh, how large would that have to be?
1: Oh, that's that a good planet. question. Um it's oh, I want to say like five to ten Earth masses. Like it's not huge. Yeah, so not
0: like Pluto though. It's a lot bigger. Oh yeah, I mean, it's no, like, it needs to be like big you, enough. It's to... like Neptune almost. I mean. Yeah,
1: so I think it's, getting... it's between the size of Earth and Neptune, which is mm. interesting um, because one of the one of the most interesting things we found about exoplanets is that the most common type of planet seems to be between the size of Earth and Neptune. So in hmm. our solar. But we system we have none of those. Exactly. Yeah. In our solar system, there's yeah. a big gap. We have. The four rocky inner planets, and then we have the four bigger, like, ice and gas giants in the outer solar system. Mm-hmm. And there's a fair gap in between in terms of size. So it's really interesting that the most common kind of planet is one that we don't have. And we have eight planets. Why don't we have the most common kind of planet? So maybe planet nine is one of these planets.
0: Well, also, so Neptune, I mean, all the gas giants in our solar system, as I understand, they're not that different from rocky planets, except they're far enough out that the sun doesn't strip away their atmosphere. And they're large enough that they retain their atmosphere. But I guess like a slightly larger planet, would that be a gas giant or, or a super Earth? or? I mean,
1: like that's the, that's a sort the a million a dollar sunny question. gas
0: giant? Or yes. So
1: like, that's actually exactly why we launched TESS. So TESS was designed to find out what these are. Like where do we transition from them being big rocks to being small mm-hmm. gas giants? Um, yeah. And we have a hint of that in the Kepler data. If you look at the distribution of the radii, the sizes of the planets, it's actually bimodal between Earth and Neptune. There's actually two bumps. One of them mm. is at about one to one and a half Earth masses, uh, Earth radii. sorry. And then there's like a valley at about 1.8. There's very few planets that are found at that size. And then there's another mm. bump at about two times the size of the Earth, so half the size of Neptune. Um, and the hypothesis at the moment is that it's got something to do with the atmospheres being stripped away. Once you get above a certain mass, you pass some critical limit and you can hold on to your atmosphere. But if you don't, then your atmosphere gets stripped away uh, and you end up with these uh, much smaller bodies. So you end up with this bimodal distribution, which is super interesting.
0: So TESS is not looking, or is it? Is TESS looking for planets with water or Earth-like planets? I mean, so you say we haven't found any in. Earth-like planets, right? So no planets that we think would have surface water at this point or not sure about that?
1: Uh, I mean, those, those M-dwarf planets that we found, those seven that we have, are our most likely mm. prospects for liquid water on the surface, and we're not sure. And they're so small that it's hard to tell. Um, we're, we're definitely, with James Webb, going to be looking at those ones uh, because we can get many more transits of those than we could get of a, a true Earth-like planet out at like 365 days. So we'll be studying those M-dwarf habitable zone planets to death with James Webb. I mean, mm. they'll be the prime targets. Mm. Um, but the planets that are further out, even for James Webb, we can't do. Uh, in terms of liquid water on the surface, again, we have no, we have no evidence yet of, of liquid water on the surface of a planet, unfortunately. But that's the prime goal. That's like the big one.
0: So would you consider a lack of a result to be a result? In the sense that um, does that mean have we surveyed stars enough to know whether they maybe don't have Earth planets then or just it's really tough because to, when you look at a star for transit. I mean, the, the planet has to be pretty close to the star and you have to looking at, be looking at it plane on and all this kind of Light. stuff. So there could be tons of planets out there that we just don't see because the conditions aren't right to see them.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: but do we have enough information to rule out Planets around other stars in in, in many cases.
1: Right. So that's what we're trying to do right now with the Kepler data. So as I said, Kepler wasn't sensitive enough on its own to see these Earth-like planets, but it saw lots of planets that were a bit bigger than Earth and it saw a lot lot of planets that were closer into their star than Earth. Right where Earth is is where the sensitivity just dropped off. Like we just, the Mm. the telescope and the amount of time we were able to observe observe for weren't Mm. enough to see Earth. So when you actually look at the population of planets, it cuts off right there. There's no planets. But there's no reason to believe that the true underlying planet population cuts off there. In fact, if you extrapolate, which is always dangerous, mm. but we do it anyway because we don't have any data. If you extrapolate from the inner planets and extrapolate out and then extrapolate from the bigger planets and extrapolate down, so you're kind of meeting at this gap, we think that Earth-like planets are actually very common. Uh, mm. So we think that something like 25 percent of stars like the Sun have a planet like the Earth. There are mm. huge uncertainties on that. In the published literature. It goes from one percent to 100 um, percent.. So but the, a lot of numbers appear to come in at around the 20 to 30 to maybe 50 percent level. So we think that Earth-like planets are actually common, even though we haven't found any. Thus the power of statistics.:
0: Lots of aliens, then. It, uh, I think Vulcan, <laughs> the star that is Vulcan, has a planet, uh, Earth like planet or something like it that. Ha- it? it
1: has a gas giant around it. But, but gas, giant. okay. gas giants often have rocky planets with them. So, uh, we, I mean, the, and what, them from Fortier asteroids too, does Fortier so. Adani does have a gas yeah. giant. So that's exciting. It may have more planets.
0: Okay. So definitely Vulcans. Okay, great. Vulcan's <laughs>
1: <laughs> confirmed. NASA scientist says. Yeah.
0: That's <laughs> the headlines tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's the, uh, are you involved in the extrapolation to, to find, uh, to estimate if there's Earth planets or?
1: Right. Sorry, you asked about tests. I didn't answer the test question. All right. So TESS is not going to find planets like the Earth. TESS is actually doing a very wide, very shallow survey of the sky. So where Kepler did a very narrow, deep survey of one part of the sky for four years, TESS is doing the whole sky in two years. So it spends one year doing the southern hemisphere and one year doing the northern hemisphere. So given that Earth, Earth, an Earth-like planet would only transit once a year, and you really want to see three, Um, If you see one transit, you don't really have enough information. If you see two transits, it could be two different planets in the same system that have similar radii. So like Earth and Neptune, if you were, again, go back to our fictional alien civilization right at the start, looking at our sun, Venus and Earth would give the same size dip, basically. Um, So you really want to see three transits that are spaced the same apart. And then you're like, yes, it's the same thing coming again and again. So Tess isn't going to find planets like the Earth. But TESS is designed to find all of the nearest stars to us that have planets around them. So it's doing the whole sky, it's doing all of the brightest nearby stars in the sky, looking at every single one and saying, are there planets around it? So this is very exciting because it's the first truly like all sky survey that we're doing. Um, the first two years, we're going to miss a strip in the middle of that ecliptic plane that I was talking about. Um, but we've just been approved for an extended mission. Hooray! Um, So one of the things we're going to do is turn our field of view sideways and get that ecliptic that we missed the first time. So we will truly do the whole sky, uh, which is very cool. Uh, And the idea is that we find the nearby stars that have planets around them that then James Webb, when it launches, will be able to go and measure in exquisite detail. So Tess is like the finder scope for James Webb. Tess is going to Mm -hmm. find all of the Mm -hmm. really exciting planets to follow up in the future.
0: And James Webb, as you say, is going to look through the atmosphere I guess look through the atmosphere of the planet as the sunlight comes through it. Exactly. And use a spectrometer. That's the main thing. And isn't there something about direct imaging that it'll be able to do? We'll actually be able to look at some of the planets that are really close or something like that, that so, maybe the bigger ones? Yeah,
1: or, so James Webb has uh, one imaging instrument on it, NIRCAM, Um I'm not, I'm not 100% versed on its capabilities for imaging. Uh, I, I just saw a talk earlier this week about James Webb looking at Alpha Centauri, what we were just talking about, that mm. star earlier, because it's our closest star. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we have ALMA. So ALMA is this millimeter telescope uh, in Chile. Um, we have ALMA observations of Alpha Centauri, uh, uh, and we want to combine that with James Webb um, at, at shorter wavelengths. So millimeter is quite long compared to infrared uh we want to look at with james webb and ulmer at the same time and see if we can see anything around alpha centauri that would be very cool
0: so if you had your druthers and unlimited money sure but we're still constrained by the laws of fiction <laughs> uh, or sorry the sorry the laws of physics laws <laughs> of fiction <laughs> and um what would you do to try to find planets around other stars And is there anything else we can possibly do, just build the biggest telescope you can possibly imagine or something
1: like that? Right. So, yes, there are a couple of very big telescopes that are being studied right now by NASA. Uh, So one is called LUVOIR, L-U-V-O-I-R, and one is called HABEX, H-A-B-E-X. And they're both designed to image planets like Earth, so truly Earth-like planets. Uh, They're both... um, you know, scaled to be very large telescopes. So HAVEX would be four meters, Louvre would be either eight meters or 16 meters, depending on which option NASA takes. Uh, and they're designed to do this very clever imaging that I talked about with the coronagraph. Um, but they're mm. also predicting that... To so
0: block b- out the sunlight.
1: Exactly, basically. exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So it's a very clever instrument that's designed to just try and block out the sunlight as much mm. as possible and look at the stars. Um I say it's being studied because there are several orders of magnitude of of improvement that are needed in the instrument for this to happen, but the prediction is given how well we've been able to improve the instrument so far that that will continue for a while. We haven't come to some fundamental limit in our ability to to measure the brightness of these planets and the separation um, so we're hoping, you know, that in twenty years' time, after James Webb and after WFIRST, we'll be able to fly one of these missions that'll be able to image planets like the Earth, uh, and that will be exquisite because if you're actually getting the Earth light, then you can actually just put a spectrograph, like you put a fiber right on that light and get the spectrum straight of the planet. Instead of doing this subtraction with the star going in front of the, mm. the, the planet going in front of the star, you have to subtract one from the other and do that thing that your physics teacher always says not to do, which is subtract one large number from another large number and look at the difference. We want to just look straight mm. at yeah, the planet yeah, so. and, like, measure the light. And this would be this would be one way to do it. So these are, you know, $10 billion missions uh, that are 20 years away. But that's, you know, if I had my druthers and was constrained by the laws of physics, I would want one of these big imaging telescopes to get built and flown in space.
0: So is it like the CCD uh, technology, like the actual uh, sensors that captures the light that needs to improve? And I guess if you get it wrong, is there a possibility of damaging the damaging the instrument from the sunlight? Is that one of the constraints or you just can't see it?
1: So uh, there are hard stops in the optics. If you want to get into the actual optics, so there's all different ways of of correcting the light. So you put a hard stop in, but then you get diffraction around that hard stop and then you have to put in a sequence of lenses basically to like block that out. Um, mm. And this whole chain of optics in place all of that's being fine-tuned right now. Like, can we put in like phase plates where you turn it, where you turn the light by ninety degrees, and do something more clever, uh, and this kind of stuff? So there's all of this incredible um, optics going on. Uh, so if anybody's out there studying optics, we need you. Come and work with us so that we can get this right. Um, and some of it is. But the iPhone CCDs. 12. iPhone 12.
0: Yeah. <laughs> do you need to. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Well. Okay. Fine. You can build a better phone, or you can help us find the next Earth-like planet. Um. Uh, So yes, we're trying, so the CCDs need to get better, our stability, so like just keeping everything at the right temperature and pressure is, like that's half the battle. All of these huge telescopes Mm. that we build and launch Mm -hmm. into space, we're just building like $100 million thermometers. Every time the temperature changed on Kepler, you could see it in the data just because the focal length changes, everything breathes. Even the electronics noise changes at different temperatures, like the the CCD readout noise is different at different Mm -hmm. temperatures. So just keep trying to find ways to keep everything the same temperature and the same pressure all the time. Like we're talking millikelvin precision Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. millipascals, Mm -hmm. and it's just like keep it. Keep it stable.
0: Why couldn't you just build the largest telescope you could possibly imagine on Earth, like Arecibo-sized visual telescope that just collected a lot of
1: light? Right. So there are there are a bunch of things being built as well, which is. So the to control, next, I guess. yeah, the next generation of optical ground-based instruments. So there's the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is being built. There's the Extremely Large Telescope, which is being built by the Europeans. There's the Thirty Meter Telescope, which is built being built by a consortium of universities and countries. Mm-hmm. So those are all to do that to build a very very big telescope on the ground.
0: Are those I, for exoplanets? I mean, you could use them for exoplanet research, I guess. Yeah,
1: for some, yes, for sure. Um, definitely imaging of big planets. Um and doing the spectroscopy that we talked about. All those kinds of things can be done. Um, the problem is on the ground is the atmosphere and the sun. So the sun comes up every day, which if you're trying to observe is a bummer, uh, that changes the temperature of everything. This darned sun comes up and heats everything up. So if you're trying to keep things stable, that's a pain. Um, and the atmosphere itself is, is mostly the struggle, right? So we, even on a clear night, if you look up, uh, the stars above you are twinkling. Uh, and that, that's in part because the atmosphere is doing stuff. You, you're seeing straight mm. through it, but the air itself, pockets of air of different temperature and pressure bend light differently. Light is actually refra- refracting through all these cells in the atmosphere mm. before it gets to your eyes, which is cool if it makes twinkling stars. But if you want that twinkling star to block out, the if you're trying to block out the light from that twinkling star to look at a planet, the star's bouncing all over the place. So it just yeah. makes it that much harder. And for, some, for a problem as difficult... As Earth-like planets around stars like the sun, you want to remove anything that you can. So definitely space, definitely a big telescope, definitely the most exquisite instruments that humans are capable of. And then, maybe then, we'll get to Earth-like planets around stars like the sun.
0: Or just build a giant shade to block out the sun
1: from the entire planet.
0: Fine.
1: (laughs) What are you, a Bond villain?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that was uh, Mr. Burns, actually, in sim- uh, the Simpsons.
1: Right, so we find yeah. Earth, but we, like, starve half the planet to death when the crops fail. Eh.
0: Yeah. Yeah, trade-offs. <laughs> Anything else you want to add?
1: Uh, if you want to go and find planets at home, you can do it. Uh, we have several citizen science projects that are going right now. Uh, If you go to Zooniverse, uh, which is this big citizen science platform, it has lots and lots and lots of different ways that people sitting at home can help scientists do things and make connections and find discoveries. One of the projects is called Planet Hunters. So Planet Hunters is taking data from tests every month. Every month, data comes down from the spacecraft and we upload it to Planet Hunters. And you can help us look for these dips. So the dips are easy to show you what they look like. I can train you how to do it in like two minutes but it's actually much more difficult to train a computer to do it. Like you can, uh, but, but dips are, have a mind of their own sometimes. They're around variable stars, they're around binary stars, they don't happen exactly periodically or they have a slightly different shape this time. So where humans are able to do this pattern matching very quickly and you know understand that's a dip, it's just a bit distorted. The computer's just like, well, I don't know what to do. It doesn't look like a dip anymore. So we have these citizen science projects where people can help us find planets. And we actually just two weeks ago submitted our first paper of a planet discovered by a citizen scientist in TESS.
0: Oh, cool, yeah.
1: So so please, if you're listening and you're interested, go get the TESS data and go help us find planets and get your name on a paper.
0: They get to name the planet?
1: No, they don't get to name the planet, but they get their (sighs) name on the paper. They get to be an author on a scientific publication, if that's something they want.
0: Perfect, That, that sounds really good. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank Dr. You so much. Jesse Christensen. It was a wonderful chat and looking forward to hearing about all the new exoplanets we discover with TESS and anything we can learn about them from upcoming space missions like the James Webb Space Telescope.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun.
0: Been a pleasure. Thanks. Cheers.